From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll look at how anti-Semitism has evolved to include avid support of some Jewish communities and vilification of others. Then we'll learn about the ongoing legal battles between the Oneida Nation and a small Wisconsin community that's challenging the nation's ability to self-govern. The United Nation is a sovereign tribal government, and Hobart is a municipal government with very limited powers under state law. And they constantly try to tell the United Nation how it should be going about doing its business. Plus, we'll explore what sitting all day does to our bodies. Sitting in itself is not bad. You know, we sit to have dinner, we sit to socialize with our friends, but it's when we sit for too long that it becomes detrimental to our health. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. The United States has been undergoing a racial reckoning. Many organizations have been incorporating diversity and equity training and attempting to grapple with the legacy of racial injustice in our nation. But celebrating diversity can have its own pitfalls. According to Dr. Keith Kahn Harris, author of Strange Hate, Anti-Semitism, Racism, and the Limits of Diversity, his work explores how anti-Semitism has evolved in a way that allows people to pick and choose the Jewish communities they identify with and those they decry. Kahn Harris will be in Milwaukee tomorrow evening for a lecture at UWM's Goldemeyer Library. And he joins me now to talk about his work. Keith, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. It's very nice to be here. Thank you. Now, this is a really difficult conversation to prepare for, in part because it feels like the language around it needs to be so precise. We're talking, of course, about diversity and and really the pitfalls of this celebration of diversity that we're seeing in the Jewish community. First, I'd I'd like to dig into this idea of selective anti-Semitism. What does that look like? So the old-fashioned kind of anti-Semitism, which of course still exists, was a kind of equal opportunities hater. (laughs) All Jews were unacceptable and all Jews needed to be opposed. Today, that is not the predominant way that anti-Semitism manifests itself, although, as I say, it does still exist. What is more common is a practice of hugging some Jews close and rejecting others, identifying with uh, with certain kinds of Jewish tradition, supporting and showing solidarity with those sorts of Jews who hold to those traditions, and rejecting those who do not. That is far more common to the more total kind of anti-Semitism that uh, we are perhaps more familiar with. It's interesting that this idea of celebrating diversity can, in some ways, give people an avenue for categorizing Jewish people into, you know, whatever kinds of group they may want. How are we seeing this kind of selective anti-Semitism play out? Well, the first thing to say is that while I'm primarily interested in anti-Semitism, that's what I do a lot of my writing on, and of course I am a Jew and interested in Jewish issues. But that said, selective racism, selective anti-racism is a wider phenomenon than just anti-Semitism, although perhaps it's more developed with regard to anti-Semitism than other forms of racism. 
the same is true for diversity and celebrations of diversity. Uh, in a lot of corners of the world, diversity is treated sometimes as, as a nice word, as a happy word, as something to celebrate, as something to take pride in, in something to highlight. Now, I'm not saying that that is necessarily a bad thing. Indeed, there are plenty of diversities that uh, I celebrate myself, and I am certainly not a champion of homo homogeneity. But what I am writing about is how there is a bit of a sting in the tail of diversity. And there is sometimes a certain type of naivety about diversity and how far it extends. Diversity isn't just about the nice things. Diversity is about the difficult things too. Humans differ from each other, ethnically, religiously, racially, culturally, in whatever way, not just in our cooking or in our costumes or things like that, but also in the values that we hold, in the ideologies that, that we, are, we are bound to. And it's sometimes for those who celebrate diversity, when they encounter those bits of diversity that are much harder to accept, there's often a failure to really face them, engage with them. And Jews are perhaps certainly in recent years, our internal diversity is very much on show to the world. We are not a quiet people. We are an outspoken people. And when Jews try and speak for all Jews, there will always be another set of Jews who say, no, you don't represent us. And I think there is great awareness now, particularly in the social media age, of the sheer variety of Jewish traditions, particularly when it comes to the politics of Israel and Zionism and the politics of anti-Semitism. And what that means is that, unwittingly, Jews can sometimes offer themselves, I should say ourselves, up as a kind of buffet, a smorgasbord. So if you don't like one set of Jews, there's always another one. And sometimes it's almost like we're competing to be the favoured kind of Jew. And so in those respects, diversity can sometimes be a bit of a trap. It can actually, even by those who see themselves as celebrating diversity, it can lead to real blind spots about relations with the more difficult kinds of diversity that you might sometimes prefer wasn't there. So if I'm getting this right, the idea is that in attempting to celebrate diversity, there is also this move that essentially points out the many ways that people are different, thus allowing folks who may be anti-Semitic already the ability to categorize people into good Jewish people and bad Jewish people. Is that is that right? That's part of it. It's also the opposite. It's also the anti-racist people, people who see themselves as defenders of diversity, can sometimes develop blind spots about who Jews and who other groups actually are and can end up either coming close to or sometimes actually embracing anti-Semitic or even racist rhetoric as a consequence, paradoxically, of their anti-racism, which is very, very difficult and very hard to point out and very hard to correct, if you like. I, I think that's an interesting part of this conversation. Um, 
As I was reading about what your lecture would be about, I, I was describing it to a friend, and I, I, I said to him, I sense what he is saying, but it's also very hard to describe. What are some examples that you use to describe this phenomenon? So I was very aware that I've been speaking at sort of a, a quite abstract level. And of course, there are many concrete examples of how this actually works. And I'll choose examples from two different directions. Uh, one example would be an American one with Christian Zionists, people from the evangelical community who see themselves as defenders of Israel and defenders of the Jewish community. Now, they are welcomed by many in the Jewish community and many in, in Israel, particularly those on the right of the Jewish community and on the Israeli political right, because they often have very similar views about what Israel should be, what sort of country it should be. However, particularly to this still a liberal majority of American Jews, this kind of alliance with Christian uh, Zionist people like John Hagee, for example, can be quite disturbing because certainly those sorts of people like Hagee sometimes reject those kinds of Jews who are not what they want them to be, who are more liberal. And more broadly, you do see on the, the Christian right in America, you do see in some cases the use of what is close to or even absolutely is anti-Semitic rhetoric about certain kinds of Jews, particularly George Soros. So there is this mixture of love and hate, <laughs> love for certain kinds of Jew that is convenient and hate for a kind of Jew that is not convenient. The other example is on the left of the political spectrum. And here I'll talk about events in the UK in the last few years, when in 2015, the Labour Party in Britain that had for many years been become a bit like the Democratic Party in the sense that it was it was very centrist, was very unexpectedly taken over by the election of a new Labour leader who was who was fairly far left, Jeremy Corbyn. And that for the next five or so years until he was eventually resigned his office after the general election loss in December 2019. There was this very, very toxic and very, very difficult conflict that emerged between UK Jewish communal organisations and the Labour Party. And the accusation was that Corbyn himself, while the accusation that he was anti-Semitic wasn't always made, at the very least he was accused of being blind or even supportive to those who were in the party, for example, particularly within the Palestinian Solidarity Movement, of which Corbyn was a, was a long-standing activist. And in response, both Corbyn himself and his defenders pointed to the fact that there was a, a small, but certainly not insignificant, section of the Jewish community, that Corbyn had very good, very warm relations going back decades, which was the usually anti-Zionist secular Jewish left. And that meant that often the controversy about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party was often a Jew versus Jew conflict between Jewish defenders of Corbyn and Jewish accusers of Corbyn. So there was this very selective dynamic 
that was very, very difficult and ultimately stirred up conflict, not just between Jews and non-Jews, but between Jews themselves. I think some people will hear this, and, and we have a similar conversation going on more generally about racism in the United States. Some people will hear this and say, well, you know, as long as you don't have a kind of blanket hatred of a group, then how can it be racist? Then how can it be anti-Semitic? What are the nuances that this argument misses? Well, I think for one thing, that history doesn't really help us in this respect. We have in modern, in other words, last two centuries history, we have examples of massive cases of racism and anti-Semitism in terms of the Holocaust, the slave trade, aspects of colonialism and so on. But that doesn't necessarily always help us in thinking about racism and anti-Semitism because those things are so big, it makes a lot of other things seem small. But the fact is they are significant in terms of how everyday life is led. And also the small things can sometimes later lead to big things. But I also think that something has changed in the nature of racism and anti-racism. I think most people are much more aware of the layers of difference and diversity within groups and between groups in a way that might not have been the case a few decades ago. There's simply groups that were once barely talked about and now not only talked about, but also speaking for themselves. And in that sort of highly noisy public sphere, certain aspects of diversity that may have been hidden before come to the fore. And that's often a very good thing. That's often a necessary thing. And people are struggling to get their voices heard over everything else. And that sometimes leads to not so much exaggeration, but a vehemence just to, to get a seat at the table, if you like. So that's one of the reasons why it can sometimes feel like this stuff isn't really that serious and that people are being dramatic, particularly Jews. But those accusations themselves can sometimes become racist or anti-Semitic too. It can veer very close to, in the case of Jews, that Jews are liars and, and exaggerate things for their own benefits. And then you get into some very, very dangerous territory when that sort of thing happens. There's also, I think, I sometimes refer to the discovery of Jewish diversity and the discovery, perhaps, of African-American diversity. As I say, it's become much more visible now, but it's also very, very convenient. It's very, very convenient when you are being accused of something, accused of racism towards a particular group to say, no, I'm not. Those Jews love me or those African-Americans love me. And sometimes it's totally sincere. I'm not saying that that's cynicism necessarily. But that process of pointing to one set of Jews or one set of African-Americans over another can itself become racist or anti-Semitic because it denies people the right, Jews or whoever else it is, to define who they are and what they think themselves. It, it sort of applies legitimacy very, very selectively. And ultimately, that is racism. Now, getting to really the heart of your lecture. How do we engage with the diversity in the Jewish community in a way that also does not reinforce this selective anti-Semitism? Well, I'm not going to give all my secrets away so people do come to the actual lecture, but 
what I one of the things I'm going to be talking about is a particular project that I was involved in. So my book on anti-Semitism, selective anti-Semitism, called Strange Hate, came out in 2019. And uh, last year in 2022, a very different book. There was a collaboration photographer called Rob Stuttart came out, which is a book of portraits and personal accounts of British Jews designed to showcase its diversity. That book had a very different genesis, and it's a much happier book, as a, you know, because it's not a book about anti-Semitism. But I suddenly felt at one point when the book was close to publication, I said, hang on, am I being a bit of a hypocrite here? Am I presenting a catalogue of Jews for people to choose their favourite one from? So I will talk a bit more about that in my lecture. But one of the things that I, I think counteracts my worries that, that I was providing a catalogue or a buffet is that the book included both portraits and also interviews with Jews. And when you hear their words, you realise that, that people are complicated and that people have ambivalence. And also that people in the Jewish community are often struggling to be Jewish, sometimes because of anti-Semitism, sometimes because of pressures from their own community. And what I hope that book does is at the very least, because it shows people at their most individual, means they are, you, you don't see them as stereotypes or as representing a section of the Jewish community. All right. Well, Keith, I think I speak for many Milwaukeeans when I say I look forward to the lecture. Thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. And thank you very much for having me. Dr. Keith Con harris is a senior lecturer at Leo Beck College, a rabbinical seminary in London. He's also a fellow of the Institute for Jewish Policy Research and the author of Strange Hate, Anti-Semitism, Racism, and the Limits of Diversity. Con Harris will be in Milwaukee tomorrow evening for a lecture at UWM's Golda Meir Library, titled Anti-Semitism and Jewish Diversity, When Celebration Becomes Dangerous. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Are you sitting down right now? Have you been sitting for the last hour? Well, get up and move around a bit. In about 20 minutes, we'll speak with a kinesiology professor about the impact prolonged sitting has on our bodies and minds. If you sit continuously for about 10 hours, then it doesn't matter how much physical activity you do, that may not counteract the negative effects of sitting. But first, we'll learn about the Oneida Nation's ongoing fight for sovereignty in Wisconsin. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. For years, the Oneida Nation has faced challenges to its sovereignty from the small village of Hobart, which lies on the eastern half of the reservation, just west of Green Bay. The disputes range from garbage collection to police jurisdiction and roadways. But they always come down to challenging the nation's ability to self-govern. Rebecca Webster was an attorney for the tribe and shares the history of these legal battles in a new book called In Defense of Sovereignty. 
Webster says Hobart's tactics are part of a wider strategy to abend tribal sovereignty throughout the country. She joins WUWM's Lena Tran to share more. So in English, what I just said is greetings, everybody. My name is Ganyata Gay, which means snow scattered here and there. My English name is Becky Webster. I'm Wolf Clan. I'm Oneida, and I grew up near Duck Creek that runs through the Oneida Reservation in Wisconsin. Just to dive in, you know, you write pretty early on that there's this patchwork of land ownership in the reservation. Different people can own it, and even under tribal ownership, there are different kinds of status, which leads to all these conflicts over who has jurisdiction, whether it's the nation, the state, the village, federal government. Can you describe how changes in federal Indian policy basically paved the way for the legal battle that you describe in your new book? It started with our treaty of 1838, the treaty with the Oneida. That set aside our current reservation here in Wisconsin as 65,400 acres or so. So that um, was during the treaty-making era, part of the removal treaties, actually, that removed us from New York State. That's where the Oneida people are originally from. So that land, according to the treaty, was held by the tribe as a whole. Individual people didn't own pieces of that. The tribe held that as communal property. And in 1887, Congress passed the General Allotment Act, and that act was meant to break up tribal land holdings. And what it did is it granted ownership of individual parcels within reservation boundaries like Oneida and gave title to individual people. It was held in in a protected status for a period of time, but then uh, would become just like everybody else's land where you could mortgage it, you could sell it, you had to pay taxes. And what happened in the case of Oneida here, um, within a single generation, we lost over 90% of the land, meaning it went from ownership from tribal members to non-members because of tax foreclosures, mortgage foreclosures, scrupulous land sales, all kinds of things happened to have such a dramatic loss of land. So that's one of the federal policies. And then what came on its heels was in the early 1900s, uh, late 1920s, there was a report called the Miriam Report, which evaluated the success of the General Allotment Act's goals of assimilating Indian people into mainstream society and breaking up tribal land holdings. The report revealed that, yes, you broke up tribal land holdings throughout the United States, but Indian people did not assimilate and melt away into mainstream society. And in fact, Indian people remained on their reservations more poor and desolate than ever. And if you really want to address this Indian problem, you need to restore management of tribal affairs to tribal governments. And then Congress later passed the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934. And that set in place a process, among other things, lots of things, for tribes to reacquire land on their reservations and have that land taken into trust status, the same status it was under the treaty. Because of all of these shifts in federal Indian policy, we now have state and local governments owning land. We have non-tribal members owning land. We have tribal members owning land. We have the tribal government owning land, all in this, some people call it a checkerboard pattern throughout the Oneida Reservation. And on top of that, we also have local governments here on the reservation. So we share this territory with the town governments, city governments, and county governments, 
All of these different overlapping layers of ownership and jurisdiction lead to a really confusing landscape when you're trying to plan for how this place looks. The confusing landscape that you find yourself in as an attorney when you are with the United Nations Intergovernmental Negotiation Team or the legal team, how did you first get involved in that work? So that was one of my favorite things that I did when I was an attorney for for my tribe is um, to be able to reach out and work with these local governments that we share this territory with to try to figure out ways to provide the best services to our respective and combined communities. One time we were negotiating with the city of Green Bay, the early stages of us meeting together, we had brought in a map to show the Oneida Reservation. And there's a portion that overlaps with the city of Green Bay. And the, the mayor at the time looked at the map and he said, oh, tell me, how is it that the reservation came to be within the city boundaries? And we were just, okay, hold on a minute. This is a really great teaching moment because the Oneida Reservation was here before Wisconsin was a state. So we need to start there. And then we walk through the history. So those intergovernmental uh, discussions are a really great opportunity for us to learn about each other and to be able to not only interpersonally develop those relationships, but to find out how each government works and ways that we can work together to provide optimal services to our shared communities. So you just mentioned Green Bay, but much of the focus of the book is this legal feud between the village of Hobart and Oneida Nation that plays out over garbage collection, police jurisdiction, roadways, all of it challenging the nation's ability to self-govern. I guess, where did all of that start? The first lawsuit actually was um, coincided with the year I graduated law school and came home. It was the, the welcome home was a lawsuit that the village filed because the Oneida Nation had purchased a large chunk of property in an area that's you know within the village of Hobart, but on the Oneida Reservation. Hobart wanted to develop that into an industrial park. The Oneida Nation did not want that area to become an industrial park because we don't control you know, what other folks are doing on the reservation. The only way for us to have a say in that would be to purchase the property, so we did. Um, and the dispute on that instance was whether or not the village was gonna put a road through there for their industrial park. And since we bought the land, we said, we don't really want a road here. We're not gonna develop it. And they said, we don't care. We wanna put a road in anyway. And then we were in court. So that was kind of the start of the more recent things. Bill Gulnick, who was our former uh, chief of staff for Oneida was also participating in a lot of these intergovernmental negotiations as well as consulted on these the, the lawsuits that we had. But he has a bit of history even before that um, into the 80s that was going on here in Oneida. So these aren't really new issues, so to speak. They're just the ones that had just come just one right after the other in succession that led to the most recent set of disagreements between the Oneida Nation and this one particular local government. What was that like as a young law school graduate to have this be the first case that you were working on? You know, when you come out of school, you really don't know what you're going to be doing. So I, I was um, a little bit shocked to find out that there was this local government that disliked us so much that they were willing to challenge us at every turn like this. And, and this is the part of the reservation that I grew up in. I had no idea there was a Hobart when I was growing up. I just thought it was all the Oneida Reservation. 
it was extra strange in one of the lawsuits that my best friend in high school, her dad had joined on an amicus brief. So that that really troubled me to think that all the times that I was at her house in in school, did did he really have this disdain for me because because I'm Oneida? So it just really switched around what what I thought I knew of what was going on here when I was growing up. You knew there was a little bit of the hostility, but to know that it was that close was really troubling to to see that that there were more people in the community that disliked Oneida than I had originally thought. Can you explain, you know, why, or what's your understanding of, you know, why the village cares about the land issues, you know, exerting their taxes, their ordinances, what is at stake from their point of view? I think it's just a matter of control and they have such a hard time letting go of control over things that they actually under federal law, they don't have an ability to to have control over. So we're, the United Nation is a sovereign tribal government and, and Hobart is a municipal government with very limited powers under state law. And they constantly and regularly try to tell the United Nation how it should be going about doing its business. And sometimes you have to look back at that and it's it's kind of comical that that they would think that they have the ability to have a say in what's going on on the reservation in, in this part of the reservation. But they would tell the people in the village of Hobart that the United Nation is a threat, which which is a, a little bit hilarious because the they would be sacrificing our intergovernmental agreement with them and they would be dedicating you know hundreds of thousands of dollars a year just to sue the United Nation and the monetary gain or loss so to speak that they would have is is actually quite small so i was estimating it's about 250 300,000 dollars or so a year at the time that they were losing or spending just to fight the Oneida tribe. And one of the main things was that they were complaining to the taxpayers about was our fee to trust. Remember when I mentioned the Indian Reorganization Act, having our land restored back to that treaty status, which would be non-taxable. So the village was saying that if the Oneida Nation is allowed to remove property from the tax rolls, that would shift the burden over to other taxpaying residents. And they got everybody really whipped up about that. But that that really isn't the true story. In my book, I talk about what they filed in their own paperwork in these appeals. And they noted that if the nation had been successful in having every single parcel of land in the village of Hobart taken into trust, at the time of the appeal, the village would have lost a combined annual total of $36,148.88, which is 1.4% of their budget. It, money is not what this is about. It's about control, and it's about trying to get, trying to relegate the Oneida Nation to the status of a common landowner. That that fight for control eventually comes to a head, at least in your book, over the Oneida's Apple Fest. What is Apple Fest, and then how did that come to take center stage for for this fight for sovereignty? That was centered on the Oneida Big Apple Fest which is a celebration of our relationship with apple orchards. Um, Even though, you know, apples aren't indigenous to the United States, the Oneida people and our other Haudenosaunee relatives have a very long history of caring for our apples. So that was one of the things at harvest time that we would have a festival to celebrate those apples. And 
part of it was in the village of Hobart and it may have all been within Hobart now that I'm thinking about it. But what happened is Hobart said, hey, wait a minute, we want you to get an event permit from us. And the Oneida Nation is just, what? Why are we going to get a permit from you for this? This is crazy. Not only is our police force four times your, the size of your police force, we've already have excellent working relationships with all of Brown County, which is Hobart's located in Brown County. We have agreements with them over what will happen on those county roads. We, we're set. We don't need um, your input or your interference with this at all. And Hobart sued. This really brought to light Hobart's main arguments throughout all of this litigation is they're really challenging that the Oneida Nation isn't a legitimate government, that we didn't exist before 1934, um, and that we shouldn't be allowed to have our land taken into trust. And most importantly, that our reservation somehow over the course of that allotment process disappeared. So it was either diminished or disestablished. So the um, district court found in favor of Hobart, which was a terrifying time for us because that would that would that would really turn back the clock on a lot of the things that we were understanding about the jurisdictional landscape here on the Oneida Reservation and potentially in other reservations throughout the country. On appeal, fortunately, the Oneida Nation won, and the court there had said, no, the, the Oneida Reservation still exists. They don't have to get your permits. And all of the, the arguments that Hobart had tried to put forward, the Seventh Circuit had turned down. Mm -hmm. So the question is, or the challenge is, whether the reservation still exists after the tribe lost ownership of the land due to those federal policies that you were describing earlier? Yes, yes. So Hobart's argument was that once land had been allotted and the tribal member lost ownership of that land, that it somehow fell off of the reservation, like it was no longer reservation land, which mm -hmm. really ran counter to all of the cases that the Supreme Court and other courts have decided before. So, and this is all, again, this group called Citizens for Equal Rights Alliance. And that group is affirmatively trying to change federal Indian policy in favor of state and local governments to the detriment of tribal governments. The Oneida Reservation was one of their targets because they knew that they had a Republican-appointed federal judge here, and they wanted to try to change federal Indian law. And they mm -hmm. almost succeeded in that Big Apple Fest case when the federal judge tried to change the law and said, yes, all of this resulted in the diminishment or disestablishment of the Oneida Reservation, which ran counter to everything that I had understood about federal Indian law. And again, like I mentioned, fortunately, the Seventh Circuit said, no, wait a minute, that, that doesn't make sense. That's not how things are. Hobart is this pretty small town of today, I think like 10,000 people, and it's over something innocuous sounding like, you know, a big apple fest. When did you realize that that had huge stakes for Indian reservations across the country? Well, we, we knew it. There were signs all over the place where we had been in contact with other tribal um, attorneys in, for other tribal reservations um, and we would see the briefs that are almost identical. So they had this network that where they would challenge, you know, fee to trust applications, jurisdictional issues in different reservations throughout the country, again, to try to change federal Indian law. So this isn't something that's just happening here in Oneida. This is happening on other reservations where you have these anti-tribal organizations infiltrating these local governments to try to get the law changed 
to the detriment of tribal sovereignty. Mm. Do you feel that your book or these experience offer lessons for nations facing similar challenges elsewhere? Yes, most definitely. I'm hoping that this book will bring awareness to these types of issues where people might just say, oh, you know, just get their permit. Just it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. These are huge issues that if we you know, succumb to these things, what, what's next? What are these local governments going to do to chip away at our tribal sovereignty? Because I said, this isn't just happening here in Oneida, this is happening in other places. So we need to continue that network of tribes talking to each other to help each other in these types of disputes, because we know that this is something that we just, we need to stay on top of and we need to stay vigilant. This has been really informative. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Rebecca Webster is the author of In Defense of Sovereignty and an assistant professor in American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota Duluth. She spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran. We'll take one more break and then learn what sitting all day does to our bodies and how to prevent the negative effects. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Sedentary jobs have increased to about 80% of all jobs since 1950. That's according to the American Heart Association. And if you're someone with a job that doesn't require much movement, chances are you're spending about eight hours a day sitting. Add to that that the average American is active for less than 20 minutes a day. And well, let's just say the physical and mental health outcomes could be better. So how could we make some small changes to counteract the negative effects that prolonged sitting has on our minds and bodies? To learn more about this issue, Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski speaks with UW-Milwaukee kinesiology professor Ann Swartz. So the phrase, sitting is the new smoking, has been out there for a bit. But first, let's quantify the type of sitting that has the really negative effects. So how long do you have to be sedentary for it to be considered prolonged sitting? Right. Yeah. And that's the key is it's really prolonged sitting that we really want to look out for. Sitting in itself is not bad. You know, we sit to have dinner, we sit to socialize with our friends, we sit to read, and those are all great activities. But it's when we sit for too long that it becomes detrimental to our health. And so we're really looking at periods that are longer than an hour when we don't move. And, you know, commonly today, we find ourselves sitting for two, three, four hours at a time, either working or, you know, watching some television shows or whatever it happens to be. But you really want to limit the sitting for more than an hour. With most of us working sedentary jobs nowadays, most adults spend at least probably eight hours a day sedentary. So let's get into some of the physical impacts of this. Right. Um, When we do sit for prolonged periods of time, it really does have an impact on both our physical and our mental health. Um, High amounts of sitting 
increases our risk for dying from cardiovascular disease, from some cancers, um, and a host of medical problems. And, and it also increases our risk of developing things like type 2 diabetes, um, high blood pressure, unhealthy cholesterol levels, um, certain cancers, and excess body fat. And then in terms of our mental health, uh, it increases our risk for depression and diminishes our cognitive function. And so we really want to try and break up that sitting time and, and not spend most of our day sitting. And as you mentioned, most of us do spend about eight hours sitting and we need to get up and move our bodies. Because I'm thinking ultimately not just our, our physical bodies, our muscles, but our brain is a muscle too. And if we're not utilizing them, they're not happy, right? Right, exactly. We need to, when we move, we contract our muscles, we increase our blood flow, and that increases our blood flow to the brain and to all organs within our body. And so that movement is really vital to making sure that we're as healthy as we can be. So all these bad effects of sitting for long periods of time, this phrase might cause some you know, confusion for listeners, but the effects of sitting for long periods of time are separate from a person's physical activity. So can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Well, we know that if people sit for too long, and when we're talking about too long, it's, it's there seems to be about a 10-hour threshold. Um, if you sit continuously for about 10 hours, then it doesn't matter how much physical activity you do, that may not counteract the negative effects of, of sitting. Um, but, you know, for most people, even if we sit eight hours a day, if we can uh, get in about an hour of activity, an activity at a moderate to vigorous level. So what I mean by that is, you know, if you're exercising and you can carry on a conversation, but you sound breathless, you know, people can tell that you're a little bit out of breath, then you're probably working at a moderate level. So if you can do about an hour of that, uh, per day, then that'll counteract the long periods of sitting. However, doing an hour of activity is a lot to ask of people. And so uh, an alternative strategy would be just to really work on breaking up that sitting time. And so, you know, uh, maybe something like every half an hour, you know, stand up and go refill your coffee or go to the bubbler and get a drink of water or go talk to your colleague. And that's going to be a great way to counteract the effects of sitting. One thing that has risen in popularity, especially over the past few years, is standing desks, especially at work. I have one, was able to get one, um, and initially was doing it all the time. Now, not so much. Uh, I need to remind myself to like keep moving or to stand for periods of time. Are standing desks the easy swap solution that we may initially think that they are? That is a great question, because you're right, standing desks are very popular. I have one too, but they're not our optimal way of breaking up sitting. They're great to change our posture throughout the day, but what we really wanna be cognizant of is making sure that we're not stationary. So when we're sitting, we're stationary, and if you're standing, sometimes you find that you're stationary for long periods of time, and that can cause lower back issues, it can cause pain in your lower legs, and that's not a great situation either. So if you have your standing desk, continue to move it, but continue to break up that stationary time. On the notes of like little things we can do, what are some other small manageable ways that we can improve our health to limit prolonged sitting? 
Yeah, so it's it is really about breaking up that sitting time. Um, and if you can do it every half an hour, great. Maybe you want to schedule it into the commercial breaks in the television show that you're watching, if you're watching uh, a television network. But, you know, you can do little things like, you know, just get up and, and walk around. As I mentioned earlier, you can do some strengthening exercise. So, you know, just do stand up and sit down from your chair 10 times. And that's going to be a great strengthening exercise as well as getting those muscles uh, working and that blood flowing. You can do things like spreading out your housework throughout the day. Um, I'll take breaks. If I'm working at home, I'll take breaks and I'll, you know, go to the basement and throw in the laundry or, you know, run the vacuum cleaner around a room. And that's a great way to break up the sitting time. So with the past few years and the pandemic, I imagine that the prolonged sitting time has only increased because a lot of us weren't set up to work from home. We were working at dining room tables, fold out chairs, even our beds or couches. And I think that lesser sense of activity is probably still with us a bit. Yeah, you're exactly right. We've gotten used to sitting more. We've gotten into the, it's an easy habit to get into and it's a difficult habit to get out of. And in addition to that, what we find is because we are working more from home still, um, we engage in less physical activity. We don't realize how much activity we get when we walk from our car to the office or, you know, when we're in the office and we have to walk to a meeting or, you know, go talk to a colleague. Those all contribute um, pretty substantially to our daily physical activity. So not only are we sitting more, but we're less active and that's not great for our physical and mental health. Another thing I think about working from home in one place is it's hard to separate in your mind the sitting and being still in that way. And then on the other hand, also knowing you need to lay down and rest, right? You just some days just feel go from sitting to laying down and then you feel like you've done nothing. But is it the bad effects of keeping your body, you know, kind of perpendicular and at that angle that's worse for you versus we shouldn't even think about laying down as a part of this equation? Well, sleep is a very different thing and sleep is extraordinarily important. It's very restorative to all of our physiological and mental processes. And so making sure that we do get adequate sleep, and I'm not a sleep expert, but I do know how important sleep is um, to, to our physical and our mental health. And so not cutting down on your sleep or impeding your sleep is really important. But when we do sit all day and we aren't as active, then we tend not to sleep as well. Um, we know that, you know, exercise can promote much better sleep. And so as hard as it can be sometimes to break up your sitting and to get outside and maybe take a walk or, you know, move around your house, it's, it's not only going to be good directly for your health, but then it's going to indirectly help you through better sleep. So again, we want to remind listeners, it may seem like a lot right now, but just start small, right? Just a, two minutes every 30 minutes, maybe an hour, right. get up, do something, vacuum, take a lap. Right. And even if you can't do that, you know, just do something. That's the most important thing. Move your body in some way every day. And that's, that's the most important message. Well, Anne, I want to thank you so much for joining me to talk about this today. It's been my pleasure. Anne Swartz is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology at UW-Milwaukee. She joined Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. Today marks the beginning of Women's History Month. 
Before we wrap up today's show, we're going to learn about Harriet Laura Baker Kramer and how she came to be the president of a Wisconsin newspaper. So she had a 54-year career in the newspaper business, which she started getting involved in at just 16 years old. So how did that job at 16 years old shape the rest of her life and career? Harriet Laura Barker Kramer was born in Packwaukee. And Packwaukee is a small community just north of Portage, Wisconsin. So at the age of 16, she came to the city of Milwaukee to stay with a relative but she was hired by the Evening Wisconsin newspaper as a a proofreader and a typesetter. One of her responsibilities at the age of 16 was to read the evening newspaper copy to the editor who was William E. Kramer. And William Kramer was both blind and nearly deaf. And so what she had to do each evening She sat next to him and read the copy into his long black ear trumpet. And so over the course of five years of this relationship with her editor, uh, they ended up eventually marrying. So the story becomes more interesting in January, on January 10th, 1883, Harriet and her husband, William, were living at the New Hall House Hotel in downtown Milwaukee. On January 10th, 1883, a fire broke out in the hotel. It was a blazing inferno. And so Harriet tried to decide best how to escape the burning hotel. So what did she do? She picked her husband up and carried him through the burning, smoke-filled hallways that were filled with screaming people. They both sustained injuries, serious injuries, but they made it out alive. And so rather than being memorialized here at the cemetery, at the monument for those that perished in the Newhall House Hotel fire, Harriet went on to live uh, a full life and had a 54-year career with the Evening Wisconsin newspaper. And actually, after her husband passed away, she became the president. So she worked her way all the way up from proofreader and typesetter to the president of the Evening Wisconsin newspaper. Anita Petrakowski is a volunteer and guide at Forest Home Cemetery. She's also the author of the historic women chapter of the book, Milwaukee's Forest Home Cemetery. She spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski last year. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen on demand. Two of Wisconsin's neighboring states have legalized recreational marijuana, and it looks like a third is poised to do the same. The talks of making medicinal or recreational marijuana legal in Wisconsin have stalled. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll look at legalization in the Midwest and how it's impacting Wisconsin. Plus, Bubbler Talk looks into some of the early architects of Milwaukee. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect. On listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.